Hello and welcome to DairyPod. I'm John Penry from Dairy Australia. In this third in a series episode on energy savings, Jared Leake, CEO at Australian Alliance for Energy Productivity, explores renewable energy sources for dairy farms. Jared is joined by Karen Stark, founder for the National Renewables in Agriculture Conference, and Stephen Sutar, engineering manager at Alternate Energy Innovations. They first discuss how to get the most out of a solar photovoltaic system on farm. In the second half of the episode, you will hear from Samantha Lamond, head of Energy 360, discussing the growing use of organic waste across ag industries, producing biogas as another on-farm renewable energy source. Hello and welcome to this third in the series of podcasts designed to help dairy farmers take action on reducing energy costs and improving their profit. I'm your host, Jared Leek, the CEO of the Australian Alliance for Energy Productivity, or more commonly known in energy circles as A2EP. We're a non-for-profit organisation that brings together energy users, advisors and suppliers to help guide improvement in energy performance. Over the last two years, A2EP has working, been working with uh, Dairy Australia, DPI New South Wales and AVIC to support various energy projects on farm. And over the last few podcasts, we've reviewed some of the quick wins to improve your energy performance and considerations when making investments in solar PV and batteries. Today, we have a two-part podcast for you. Firstly, to explore how to get the most out of your solar PV system and and using a a concept such as solar irrigation. And in the second part, we'll have a look at on-farm biogas solutions. And so for our first part of this podcast today, I'd like to welcome uh, Karen Stark from Farm Renewables Consulting, uh, who also runs the Renewables and Agriculture Conference, and Stephen Souter from AEI Australia. Uh, Welcome uh, to you both and thank you for joining me. Thanks, Jared. It's good to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. And if we can start with you, uh, Karen, uh, if you could just uh, let us uh, know a little bit about your relationship to the uh, dairy industry. Yep. So the work that I do is very much at the intersection of renewables and farming and agriculture. So Dairy Australia and dairy farmers are one part of the sector, one of the sectors that I work with, you know, also work with horticulture, but really things like solar irrigation, where a lot of, a lot of dairy farmers grow their own um, food for their, um, for their herd is one of the areas that I see quite a lot of potential really in the future. And we're looking forward to unpacking that one. Thank you and welcome, Karen. And for, for Steve, uh, if you could just uh, let us know a little bit about uh, AEI and what you're doing within the dairy industry. Yeah, well, I'm the uh, engineering manager at Alternate Energy Innovations, which is AEI. Uh, we're based in Latrobe Valley in a uh, couple of hours east of Melbourne um, and in the middle of the largest power stations in Victoria. Um, I've been doing process control engineering for about 40-something years. Um, lost count really, 15 years in the pulp and paper, 25 years in water and wastewater and about the last three years in agriculture and renewables Um, and basically we were involved in designing intelligent behind the meter um, energy management. Brilliant. so this sounds great. We've got two uh, uh, really good speakers here for today to talk about solar PV and getting the most out of this. Uh, we know that most dairy farms, about 50%, already have solar PV installed. Uh, we know that uh, rising electricity prices is probably going to encourage more to install solar PV. And a typical dairy farm invests around 30 to 40K, uh, hoping for a payback of, of usually less than five years. 
However, we've seen the stories that that's that's quite often not the case. Uh, uh, whether they're not quite matching their production with the the, the uh, solar PV production that is with when the dairy sheds operating and what have you. Um, currently, you're seeing a bit of a change in the way farmers are thinking about solar PV and 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 where the way they're thinking about maybe I can use it better with with uh, irrigation and things like that. Yeah. I, so what you said around the the way that dairy farmers use energy often doesn't quite match the peak um the peak kind of uh generation of solar so a lot of dairy farmers probably looking at how can they use that solar in the middle of the day to heat heat or cool if refrigeration or whatever that might be or you know some might even be looking into battery storage um even though that's quite expensive at the moment because then they can store that excess energy and then use it in the peak peak time of the day um later in the day when they might be milking as well but you know we've had um speakers at the renewables and agriculture conference but we've had speakers in the past one of them had a robotic dairy so she um Kay Smith her name was you know robotic dairies tend to use about 50% more energy than than the conventional style dairy. Um, so that's where renewables, batteries and a generator kind of came in for her to, to save a lot of costs rather than kind of creating a new connection to the grid, which is what, it, what the alternative would have been. So for someone like that and that operation, it worked really well to be off-grid and to be using solar batteries and a generator. Um, but, yeah, as you mentioned, you need to be looking at how you can use that solar um to make the most of it and reduce your payback. So things like irrigation as well in the middle of the day um, is a good good option, really. Yeah, absolutely. This is certainly a great enabler. You've got this cheap uh, electricity being provided or cheap energy being provided by the solar PV. Uh, yeah, things like robotics and these sorts of trends, great enablers, but uh, getting the most out of them. Uh, certainly, that's that's the challenge then. And and Steve, uh, what are you what are you seeing in in your part of the world in terms of uh, thoughts on 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 solar PV and and, and trends and, and where that's going? You know, I think in dairy we've probably got a similar approach to what's happened in residential. And and the the initial part is virtually let's throw solar on. Um, surely it will fix the problem, and we won't have to worry about it. And in general, that's reasonably true on the perfect solar day, but there aren't many perfect solar days. So um, if we're not getting generation at some part of the day, but we've moved load there, then potentially we've moved from an off-peak use of power to an on-peak use of power. And if you do that too often, you can end up with a higher bill rather than a lower bill. So the, the real answer is to put what we call intelligent renewables in and that's where there's a control system that has intelligence to be able to move load to be able to use it when the solar is being generated absolutely and, and Karen that's what that's what you're saying as well then yeah that's right but also you know I wanted to make a point around and Stephen will be able to add to this that the distribution network in many areas regional rural areas just isn't fit for purpose anymore so if a farmer puts in the solar and they're not being able to use the most, you know, the majority of it behind the meter, really they should be able to put it into their into the network, into the local network and sell it to their neighbours or back to the network. But because of these kind of skinny lines and out-of-date distribution networks, it's not enabling farmers to do that, and that extends out the the um, the payback a lot of the time because it, the, the physical um, constraints on the grid as well as regulatory issues with doing that. 
Yeah, so if you don't have that that nice, easy backup of, oh, I've got surplus, I'll just sell it and I'll get a reasonable price for that, that's not there. You've got to start thinking about sort of yeah, things differently and how to get the most out of it and what have you. Um, let's talk solar irrigation. Is this something where you can say, I've got an existing solar PV array and I'll just sort of, I'll tap on, I'll add on solar irrigation, or is it very much got to be done bespoke and, and designed from the, the ground up uh, with its own solar array, uh, uh, with its own, you know, whether it be battery systems? Can uh, maybe Karen just start with us on that one? Yeah, I mean, I, I can talk about our own experience on our farm. So I live on a cotton wheat barley farm and we had to have bespoke system because of the size of the system. So had to pump 15 megs a day, which I'm sure a lot of dairy farmers don't need to have that larger system. But unfortunately, being the first of its kind, and it was in 2018, um, the first year went great, saved 180,000 uh, litres of diesel with the solar um, solar diesel hybrid. But after that, we've had massive issues with trying to get the, the system performing as promised, and we haven't really been able to use it over the last three or four years. So unfortunately, you know, there is still with these larger systems, there's still a lot to be learnt with the industry. The technology needs to really catch up and and be um, be created with agriculture in mind. But I do believe there's smaller off-the-shelf systems um, that that you know up to 100 kilowatts, I think, of solar that maybe Lorentz as a solar pump business do sell. Um, but you know, I've been told that really people need to be pumping for more than six months a year for it to be viable in, in terms of an economic payback. Well, you, you've you've opened up the, the can there. We can't. We have to ask now. You've had some big issues and you haven't been using it. Yeah, tell tell us more about that. What's what's going on? Well, so with the size of um, the system that we had, so we had five hundred kilowatts of solar, an electric, um, a two fifty kilowatt electric um, motor, and then the cat diesel generator about five hundred. KVA, I think it's called, but um, with that scale, you know, diesel generators of that size aren't made to be blended with solar. So when it was trickling in a little bit of solar to make up um, a little bit of power to make up for the lost solar, if you know, in the morning or evening periods, you know, they're not there, it wasn't working hard enough and that was causing glazing on the system. And the other issue was um, when there's a sudden cloud event, the diesel generator couldn't ramp up quick enough to provide that lost power again and the whole thing would switch off. And then you've got water kind of going up and down the um, the bore, which isn't great as well, but, you know, with silt at the bottom of our bore. So unfortunately, you know, we've had pretty big problems with that. We're still working with the supplier to try and resolve that. Um, and, you know, the last two years we've had so much wet weather that luckily we didn't necessarily need it as much, but um, we've lost out on the opportunity to sell large-scale generation certificates, the LGCs, as part of the the renewable energy targets, but um, you know these these just it just tells me that it's not easy for farmers to to convert over to renewables. Um, there's still a long way to go, but it's lucky that, that we have people like Stephen who do understand you know how to make doing it on farm and doing demonstration projects and letting others learn from it as well. Yeah, excellent, and then uh, it's, it's the right direction. Yeah, we have to get off diesel. It's going to have more and more supply pressures and cost pressures over the years. We have to decarbonise, as everyone knows. Uh, so it's got to be done. So we'll have used all these learnings here. Steve, you, you're involved in that uh, uh, sort of a flagship project from Willandra. Uh, do some of the, the comments that Curran's making here, does that sound familiar and, and some of the challenges or, or is that uh, uh, you didn't, didn't quite in, uh, encounter those with the uh, Willandra project? Well, Karen's um, situation is a little bit more complicated than most. Um, it, it's probably the hardest area to work on within renewables. 
when you're working um, off the grid and you have large pumps and large generators. So we could probably talk all day about what you can and can't do in that space. But if we get back to um, a dairy farm like Willandra, um, if we think um, dairies are hard to put renewables on, then irrigation is more difficult. Um, and the reason for that is that the major loads within irrigation are typically fixed power loads. So if you pump to a pivot, you need a fixed amount of power and uh, you don't get at any stage in the day a fixed amount or steady um, generation of dollar. Um, so therefore the match is even worse. But what we've found from doing our work is if you add multiple loads together of different sizes and different types, you can produce a result at Willandra that cut their power bill from 81,000 to 1,000 used um, on a typical irrigation day in excess of 90% of the renewables uh, produced and used less than 6% uh, percent on peak power at the same time. And that effectively explains the only way to make good money, really good money out of renewables is to use it all. Um, and one of the things that we're pushing in the future within farms is controlled microgrids, which will allow power, uh, renewable energy that's generated in one uh, power connection to be able to use, be used across the farm at other power connections, but not just on an accounting basis. It's where the amount of excess, um, if it's 20 kilowatts, is used at another pump that uses exactly 20 kilowatts. And then if you put a mixture of um, dam pumping systems in with fixed power irrigation systems, you can get really, really good answers. And control microgrids are the way to get the best answer, not only for the farm, but for the grid. And I can feel Karen say, thinking, gee, I wish I had these uh, options available to me. Mm, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> these would certainly help. Eh? Uh, so microgrid, Steve, and then and then having all these a, a series of different loads to to work with with their uh, batteries. Is this is, is batteries coming to play here to to stabilise the loads and take out peaks and troughs and things like that? What how, what sort of role do batteries play here? Um, my general uh, comments on batteries is if you don't need them, don't use them. Uh, we put a battery in it, we'll land it to help smooth out the renewables, but found that we didn't need it. Um, and we could do just as good a job without it. Um, within dairy, the most common time to use the battery is really if you have unreliable supply um, and you want to keep your dairy running. And that's probably the only time at the moment that I would recommend you even look at a battery unless you haven't looked at every other option known to man first. Um, and I think you could do, you could use 90 to 95% of solar in a dairy relatively easily, I believe. You've just got to change the dairy process a bit because we never ever designed dairies for renewables. Absolutely, and certainly our research is showing that if you're looking at uh, using a battery to save energy costs, uh, between peak and off peak and things like that, it's never going to stack up for reliability. Yes, that is the case. And Jared, is that is that because of the cost of batteries? Would you say, like, if the cost were to come down, would it then be a really good solution? Yeah, absolutely. And but the cost needs to come down by sort of fifty to fifty percent or so. Oh, okay. Right now, mm. the, the quick calculation looks like something like a, a, a an efficiency of about eighty percent. 
round trip. So you lose at least 20% or so, even on lithium ion, even more on, on, on other style of batteries. And then you say, well, and how often am I going to fully utilize that battery as well? And that, that seems to be the issue that you can't, you know, the efficiency and then the full utilization, you just don't get a lot out of it to, you know, from, from what some uh, sales uh, reps may be telling you, that sort of thing. Steve, what, 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 what's your thoughts on that? Oh, I think uh, the, the main area we're working on batteries is uh, what we can do on an irrigation site when we're not irrigating. So for the nine months of the year that we're not irrigating, we're looking at putting behind the meter batteries that are not necessarily owned by the farmer that will be involved in grid support and community battery support. Um, and that allows the use of the battery to be used over a longer part of the year. The energy is already being generated behind the meter. So if you install it in the meter, there's no network cost. And if we do that on multiple farms, we can actually orchestrate multiple battery systems around a community and have them working together. Love hearing about that community benefit, yeah. But if, so Stephen, if I could just ask, so with the um, battery, if it's going to provide services to the, to the network, um, how's that relationship going with getting them to kind of work with you? Oh, I think that's starting to move reasonably well. We're in um, a program at the moment called Energy Lab and we've just had some discussions with about five network service providers as part of that um, development of, of um, startup companies. And uh, there is a much bigger appetite now um, from network service providers because they just realise that it's got to happen and behind the meter is a key way of keeping the network um, under control in the future. And Steve, we... we... Think about this, uh, getting the most out of this, the solar and, and making all this work. Because I think a key message here is it's not just sort of plug and play. If you think, oh, I'll get a, I'll get a solar array and I'll just hook it up to an electric pump and let it go. Uh, it sounds like you're in for some, 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 I'll say steep learning curves there and probably lower ROI. What, what sort of, say I was going to spend $100,000 or so on this, what, what what do I need to spend to make sure I get a good return on investment, you know, controls and metering and things like that? What what makes that a full package or, or even to say this is this is going to be a well-controlled thing? What do I, what do I, how much do I need to look at spending and how much does this need to be part of the overall package? Well, I think the thing that's different in these particular cases is you have to do a degree of engineering of the solution in the first place. I think um, you definitely can't, cannot install solar and just assume that everything's going to be okay because predominantly we're connecting it to systems that were never designed to use solar. So it's not like plugging a generator in and running it at 80% capacity and running the pump at big loads. You've got a, a source that can be producing um, 100 kilowatts in one minute and 10 kilowatts one minute later. Um, and if you don't design the system to be able to handle that level of variation, um, then you won't um, end up with a solution that's got a reasonable return. But you can get a good return based on the engineering that you need to do um, because the usage of renewables is, is a lot higher than what it would be if you don't. Um, and you look at dairy farms, some people are getting less than 45% utilisation, but also you've got the difference between what solar creates during the summer compared to the winter. 
Um, so if you look at irrigation, we've got good return at Willandridge for the irrigation period. If you look at what you can do for the other nine months of the year by getting it involved with community battery shifting load and uh, the, a return on investment for not only the farmer but for the community, then um, all up you're creating a better end result and things like maximum demand management um, will be a key thing moving forward within the network and the agricultural industry is well placed to be involved with that because the loads are significant. Um, we've got probably three or four farms on board at the moment with a load in excess of 1.2 megawatts in total. So you don't need many farms to be a significant player in the um, flexible demand uh, market. Mm, excellent. And you mentioned about 40% utilisation there. So what, 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 what's your number? Where, where do you think is a good, uh, obviously the higher the better, 100% utilisation would be would be perfect. What, what do you think is a good number where you start saying, okay, we're re really getting the, the most out of it and, and, and a good target to have? Oh, I think a dairy, just the dairy process, it should have a, a percent usage in excess of 80%. 80, wow. That's that's really getting the most out of that, that solar production. Great. And when we talk about things like solar irrigation, like energy is one part of it. There's always other things that come along with this sort of change and maybe some are good and uh, better than expected and some nice positive surprises and some un un weren't weren't as expected. One I'm worried about and hear about you know, the idea of the, if you've got to then irrigate more during the day, evaporation losses, where, where, where do we sit on those, Karen? Are they, is that uh, on, on the whole, is this not a, not a big issue or maybe it will be in some years and not others? Um, I'm not an expert on that, but I I have heard that it's better. The farmers that used to irrigate in the off-peak, so overnight um, when the prices are low and that have now gone to day irrigation because they've got solar, have said that not only is it better for their sleep, but it's better for the plants because they use, um, you know, they use the sun's um, power to, to photosynthesize to create energy. So um, I believe that the evaporation probably, like that's a, a slight um, negative, but there's more positives, I guess, to a system like that than than negatives. But yeah, I wouldn't say I'm an expert. Oh, I've had sleep come up several times here, and and that's actually one of the values of a battery mm. <laughs> because you may have tripped and uh, the refrigeration plant and the battery just <laughs> kicks in automatically, and that's a few less uh, two a.m. wake up calls. That's good. And and Steve, uh, what what are you seeing in these other? I'll call them non-energy benefits. What what else is happening with other sort of productivity things uh, with 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 uh, solar irrigation? Well, I think it's the total package within solar irrigation that gives you the other benefits. Because if you automate irrigation systems that are currently not fully automatic, then you, in the case of Willandra, we cut their. Um, Time involved in irrigation uh, reduced by 15 to 25 hours a week during the irrigation season. They irrigated predominantly during the day, and as Karen said, they actually sleep at night now rather than look out the window and see if the light on the pivot's still uh, flashing. And um, and the level of automation means they do more controls um, from their lounge room and less travel on uh, quad bikes, which is a significant safety improvement. So the other benefits are that I think you get improved irrigation because you have a fixed schedule that means it gets done rather than you forget about doing it because you've got 20 other things to do. So in our case, 
um, Will Andrews able to do a three-day schedule? And we're currently working with a system called Quan Systems that was developed in Western Australia that actually produces the irrigation schedule for our system. So it will help the farmer um, set the number of hours per day for irrigation. And the advantage of that is it averages the irrigation over more days. And the more you average it over each day, the more you can utilise renewable. Brilliant. Now, these extra benefits often much more than the, the energy benefit and the energy savings. So great to hear about those. That's uh, And once again, it uh, sounds like whenever Steve talks, it's like this holistic approach. You think of the automation and all these other bits and pieces, and you start saying, yeah, we can see how this starts becoming a, a good solution. Um, Stephen, it seems like there's uh, um, there can be a lot of barriers to to getting solar irrigation moving. What's your what's your thoughts on some of the barriers and what needs to change and, and get this uh, this sort of industry moving? Oh, ch changes to networking, absolutely one of change the structure of the networking. Why are we encouraging people to irrigate at night when eighty percent of the power at night is coal fired boiler power? And we're charging people in Gippsland, it's 16 cents on peak in the middle of the day and four cents at night. That is ridiculous. Mm. Yeah. If we can't change that one single thing, I'm not saying don't let, don't, you've got to give the network service provider the same amount of money to manage the network but you don't have to encourage people to do everything wrong to do it. I mean, we've been doing hot water services in the middle of the night for 100 years. Yeah, it's got to change. And we're still in part doing it. Now, the problem you run into, and you can look at it, how difficult it is, if you've got solar on your roof and you're watching it and you say, Dep, I've got solar now, I'm going to go and put the, my, my washing machine or my dryer on, and you put it on and 10 minutes later you've got no solar, next minute you're paying high money for it. So you just got to be aware that that's the case. But let's encourage people. They've got solar sponge as a network tariff in South Australia, but that applies to residential, not industry or commercial. Um, and we need we we just need to be smarter and quicker. And then once we get some incentives right, then it becomes these sort of people issues. Yeah, we've got these things that everybody knows is the right way to go, but for we take forever to do it. We spend years and years and years trying to get something simple going. Mm. Yeah. You did mention quad bikes and things, and that makes makes you think about about mobility and other other usages going forward. Uh, EVs, I think, Karen, you've been looking, considering, and thinking, watching what's going on with EVs. Uh, have you got anything there, and see how that that ties in with where we're going with energy on farm? Yeah, um, you know, there's a lot of interest from farmers um, on what the next type of tractor is going to be, whether it's biomethane, hydrogen or electric. Um, and we actually have a session at the Renewables and Ag Conference um, where we'll have a dis panel discussion about future fuels and, and tractors um, because, you know, the John Deere is going to be bringing their electric tractor. I've heard by about 2026 they're coming to speak at the conference, which, you know, that's still three years away and potentially later than that, and that those tractors are going to be those suited to horticulture mainly, high-value crops. Um, so we're quite a way away from having, I think, electric tractors. Unfortunately, you know, there's there's already companies like Monarch in the U in the US that are that are um that are manufacturing um autonomous 
autonomously driven electric tractors, which is pretty cool. But in Australia, because we lack those low emission standards for vehicles, you know, we're not necessarily attracting manufacturers to bring their their vehicles over here. Um, but hopefully, you know, we'll see change in the next four to five years. And in the meantime, you know, potentially stuff like renewable diesel might be a good transition fuel um, on probably more of a smaller scale. But, it, you know, it doesn't it means that you don't need to modify the engines of tractors to be able to use renewable diesel and you reduce your emissions as well. So those are the types of really interesting topics that um, that I think a lot of farmers are interested in at the moment. Absolutely. Uh, and early days there, lots lots happening in that space. And we keep hearing about fuel efficiency, fuel standards coming in that will help drive this change. And I understand they're getting close. So let's let's hope that helps helps drive and, and supports change though, really. Uh, mm. It's going to be uh, uh, an expensive transition there. It's good, good, good. Uh, uh, Steve, any thoughts how, how an EV might uh, complement a, a solar, solar uh, system? I think EVs are going to be interesting. Doesn't matter whether they're on a farm or in a house, for that matter. I think it'll be um, a little bit more difficult to integrate than we think, um, and it'll be interesting to see how um, batteries and EVs play a role in the future energy market. I'm of a bit of a believer where you try and um, get the battery to control and look after the house itself and not get too involved with what the network's doing so that you, if you stabilise enough houses, you get rid of some of the problem we have in the current network. Uh, so I'm probably leaning a little bit more that way, but because only because I know um, 10,000 things are much easier to control than 10 million things. And um, I think the simpler you make it, simple things tend to work. Um, I've probably said that a million times in 40 years. Um, but uh, I think I think the interesting thing moving forward will be how we electrify the entire farm. Yeah, and I guess picking up on that point with electrification, you know, we're going to need a lot more power to a lot of these farms. And the question is, is our grid um, up to it really? <laughs> and how are we going to get the amount of energy needed to, to power a massive electric tractor? There is a researcher at ANU um, that is looking at, you know, a lot of tractors are only used for four or six months a year. So they're really these, they could be potentially a massive network of mobile batteries that could, you know, provide services to the grid in the future if it's coordinated or, you know, there's some type of smart system put in place, which is pretty exciting if farmers could be paid to, you know, um, help help stabilise the grid via their tractor just sitting in the, in the shared electric tractors in the future. Well, I'm certainly glad we've got people like yourselves thinking about these issues and 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 trying to find solutions. Uh, so as we can see, there's there's solutions there, solar PV, and 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 getting the most out of that for your dairy shed at the moment. Uh, solar irrigation emerging, and 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 um, thanks for that uh, the message there today of making sure that you've got the controls and looking for those other benefits. So, uh, but yeah, nice to see you two uh, both thinking about the future because uh, we're going to need these solutions. So that's great. And uh, so that's uh, that ends our podcast, uh, the first stage, the first part of this today. Great to hear about the, the latest with solar and how to best get the use out of that and irrigation and EVs. Uh, Karen, Steve, many thanks for joining me today and uh, much appreciated. Thanks very much for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. It's great fun. And so here we are with Samantha Lamont, the head of Energy 360, a bioenergy company owned by AGL. Uh, Samantha, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Jared. Lovely to be on. 
Samantha, could you just start off and just a little bit of introduction of yourself and Energy 360 and and, and a little bit of the, the connection here with uh, dairy farms? Sure. So we um, to start with in the future, in the in the present, uh, we were purchased by AGL a year ago, and um, that's really helping us to establish ourselves in the marketplace. Um, <clears throat> we've been. Um, I I grew up on a dairy farm, and um, and it's really exciting to be able to start opening up that market with. AGL's um, support and um, and be able to develop something that I've been working on for about 10 years um, to, to use organic waste to turn it into energy. Aha, uh-huh. so we're returning to your roots. This is, this is exciting. We're going full circle here. This is good. It's all good fun on a dairy farm. It's 24-7 and that's what energy, that's what energy is all about as well. So you've got a good understanding of the dairy farm and, and, and their needs. That's that's a really good starting place. If we talk bioenergy, uh, there's various types of, of bioenergy. Um, could you just give us a really quick snapshot of, of bioenergy and, and what it means in the context for what your, your Energy 360 is looking at? Well, bioenergy is all about creating energy from um, an organic waste organic stream whether it be waste or otherwise um this um and from our perspective we we always use waste um and it's um waste from generally from um agricultural um byproducts so the so dairy farms for example it's the manure um and from food processing sites it can be you know carrot tops um uh, can be waste strawberries all these sorts of things they can get they they can be put into, um, it can be treated um, in order to be able to provide, um, to generate bioenergy. Mm. And, and generating a bioenergy, I understand that is biogas is the, the sort of raw form that we're talking about here, or if you upgrade that to, to a more pure form, usually known as biomethane. Have I got that? That's right there. That's correct, Jared. You uh, biogas uh, is what is produced from the decomposition of the organic waste streams I just described previously, and in order to put use it um, <clears throat> in the gas grids, it has to be upgraded. They call it upgrading by taking out um, the carbon the carbon dioxide and nitrogen and a few other bits and pieces in order to be able to meet the specification to put it into the gas grid. So you mentioned CO two there, and 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 you've got to separate that. And I understand that when you when you burn biogas, that also produces CO two. And everything I've read points towards using bioenergy overall helps the environment, overall helps reduction of CO two emissions. Could you just sort of unpack that a little bit for us, and and uh, and and why that's that 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 reduction overall reduction happens when you use bioenergy? Sure. Um... When you use bioenergy, what it actually does, it creates negative emissions because with bioenergy, the organic waste stream is still going to break down, whether it breaks down and is captured to use an energy or it just decomposes and emits the the methane to the atmosphere. But what it does do is is it results in less natural gas being required to for as energy to follow the for the process that it would have otherwise been used, the natural gas would have otherwise been used for, so that hence the negative emissions. 
Absolutely, yeah. So you've got the, the less methane coming that would have happened uh, naturally anyway from that decomposing organic matter, and, and methane is a, is a, a really bad, uh, uh, say, greenhouse gas to use some older terminology. And then you've got that displacement of what potentially people are using fossil fuels for natural gas as well. So That's yeah, right. yeah, good one. And if I look at uh, where sort of energy has been at for dairy farms over the last five years, obviously electricity prices are increasing and that's that's put a lot of pressure on dairy farmers. Uh, and a lot have installed solar PV and the focus has been on that. But if you compare that to sort of Europe, it seems there's been a lot of investments over the last 10 years in bioenergy, anaerobic digestion, on-farm uh, uh, digestion and what have you. A, a real difference there. Um, what's what's the difference in the markets? Why, why such a, a bioenergy focus in the countries like Germany and Scandinavia and not so much here? Sure. In, in Europe, they have... Um, different types of methods for farming animals. Um, they, because of the temperatures in the northern um, countries, in particular, they um, they house the animals at least ten to tw- to eleven months a year. So, therefore, the manure is captured, um, and the waste bedding and the waste grain is captured on a daily basis. Whereas um, in Australia. They only capture. They can only capture the the manure waste uh, when the when the animals are in to be milked. <clears throat> so the difference is the quanti- the quantities are are create a huge difference and a much greater opportunity to to generate biogas than than we have in Australia. And the other reason is that the in Europe they use the bioenergy for they use the 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 bioenergy that's created from the use of a generator by putting the biogas into the generator um, and they use the heat that's generated from that engine um, to heat up things like nearby schools or nearby apartment buildings so they have a different use for the for the thermal energy whereas in Australia it's actually quite difficult to find a a use for the thermal energy. Understood. And so, where are we? Where are we headed then with uh, the potential for for bioenergy? I'm hearing about uh, as a, there's a mega project at Moxie Farm in in New South Wales, uh, um, looking at uh, that sort of shedding operation, and I'm hearing about a few other trials and bits and pieces going on with within dairy farms in Australia. Where, where do you see the the opportunities for bioenergy for for dairy farms in Australia? Well, a lot of dairy farms in Australia use poultry manure as their fertilizer, um, which is in it's an extremely good fertilizer, very high in nitrogen. <clears throat> but if you combine poultry manure, a bit of cow manure, and horticultural waste, then that generates very high quality non-synthetic fertilizer. So rather than focusing on the um the just the dairy farm waste as it is, which is not which is not particularly large quantity in Australia, we need to be um we need to be mixing waste streams, which include from from agriculture. And Australia, let's face it, is exports is one of the largest exporter of agricultural produce. So therefore, we have to make it. So therefore, we've got some waste streams. <clears throat> we just need to amalgamate um, more than one uh, waste stream, and I think we'll have our USP. Uh-huh. So this is about, you know, if I got the term right, co-digestion, bringing in these yeah. different waste streams. <clears throat> That's right. 
And I understand there's a, a little bit of difficulty with regulation there. I'm not sure you're maybe not an expert in that regulation, but I understand there's some more to be done there and, and, and as well as some mapping and things too. Well, you're correct, and particularly, you know, the um, the local regulations have been somewhat unkind to digestate for a while, um, but that is changing. But we have spent some time speaking with EPA consultants, and they advise that it's a matter of under game providing enough information for the EPA to be comfortable with the individual processes that companies and farms are <clears throat> anticipating to undertake and bringing them along for the journey. understand that's the key to unlocking this. Sounds good. And, and, and uh, as you know, that uh, Dairy Australia with a consortium of others has received a uh, grant from Sustainability Victoria to start studying these different uh, waste flows from, from from meat processing and dairy and dairy processing and, and ag waste. And hopefully that represents a really good opportunity to uh, to get these, find out where we can do this co-digestion and bring these feedstocks together, I guess. Sure. And if we could get this these sort of co-digestion opportunities to be pre-vetted and pre-agreed by the EPA, which I know that they do do in some cases, that will really support the industry and, and <clears throat> mean that there's less that there's less work for people like farmers who are already time poor. So gotcha. that presents quite an opportunity. And we talked about biogas before, and you just introduced that idea of digestate. This is the the, the sort of solids. Uh, uh, could you just describe that a little bit further to us, This uh, the digestate that comes from this process? It's well, when you uh, when you put a raw feedstock, so a raw waste source, so like manure or horticultural clippings, into an anaerobic digester, they're in there for between twenty eight and thirty six days, and they are broken down further. And and but the other thing is that they're they're stirred, so that as long as the input the input percentages are the same or very similar, then you you have. Um, you have similar outputs, which which is which is something that is required by farming by farmers. They need to, you know, be sure that what they're putting on is virtually the same is is a replicable fertilizer application. So that that's one of the that's one of the um the key parts about digestate. Oh, good. Sounds like a good sort of circular economy story here, where where the waste flows go into the the digester, and then uh, the the getting uh, your biogas from that, and then you're getting the digestate to go back to the farming. So yeah, sounds like a good story. With the the, the bioenergy or the biogas that's produced here, where do you see that? being utilised or used? You mentioned before about maybe that would displace natural gas, but uh, is that uh, when we're in the sort of countryside, maybe there's not such big demand for that. Where, where do you see this this biogas or bioenergy being used? Well, the the dairy farms do have a demand for it, and it generally is outside the days of times of darkness, which is one of the reasons solar panels have not worked. So <clears throat> I see that the opportunity is to create lots of little batteries so we have, you know, you have 10 dairy farms in a 10-kilometre radius, 20-kilometre radius, hooked into the grid, providing a megawatt of, of power um, into the grid. That's what I see the opportunities. <clears throat> and they can, you know, then they get a discount. They get obviously get a discount. If not, they get, you know, they get paid for doing this. Um, they get high-quality non-synthetic fertiliser. Um, and then 
Derek Gabe participated in the grid, firming the grid um, when times when the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine. Because Brilliant. because biogas um, in an anaerobic digestion unit can be used as a battery. It sounds like you'd have reliability uh, gains there as well. There's so many farmers at the end of a, a long mm. swirl yeah. line and and, and have uh, stability and reliability issues. That <clears> sounds <throat> like it's a, a potential solution for that as well. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, really good to hear uh, about this, Samantha. And um, nice to know where where things may be headed with uh, within bioenergy in Australia. And it sounds like if we can get some some regulation, and momentum, and some confidence happening with the the co-digestion and the handling of the digestate, we've we've got a a, a real potential here. Um, any 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 final thoughts on on where this all might be heading for uh, Energy Three Hundred and Sixty and 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 through uh, for our dairy farmers? Uh, well, I think as the younger generation comes through, they have a different perspective on on decarbonisation. So that's uh, that's going to be really helpful to progress the opportunities that we've got in front of us. Sounds good. We look forward to it. Well, thanks very much, Samantha, for joining me today. And and thank you for our other speakers that we've had uh, on this podcast today. That's being uh, Karen Stark and Stephen Souter. Uh, thanks for joining us and hope you've really enjoyed this energy series of podcasts brought to you by Dairy Australia. Thank you. If you would like to find out more about ways to save energy on farm, visit www.dairyaustralia.com.au and search energy. We have also placed a link in the episode notes. We hope that you have enjoyed this DairyPod episode, and if you have suggestions or ideas for future episodes, you can get in touch by emailing dairypod at dairyaustralia.com.au. Thanks very much for listening, and bye for now. 